Hello, I'm Neil Aitchison and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. In this podcast, Polly Teal, the Joint Artistic Director of the Shared Experience Production Company, talks to Professor Michael Bell of the Department of English and Comparative Literary Studies at Warwick about the production of Tolstoy's epic novel War and Peace, being staged at Warwick Arts Centre. The production, which was co-directed by Polly Teal, is currently touring the country and was originally staged at the National Theatre in 1996. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my, uh, my name is Michael Bell. Um, I'm from the English department at, uh, at Warwick, and uh, I have the pleasure this evening, the, the privilege, of uh, sharing the platform with our really distinguished guest, Polly Teal, who is a co-director with the Shared Experience Theatre Company, and this is to discuss their current production of an adaptation of War and Peace, which has just finished its run in Bath and is coming up to Warwick's Arts Centre uh, this week. So I have been to Bath and seen it, but many people at this point at Warwick will not have seen it. Um, so uh, I will be asking her questions about the, the adaptation. And also with us is uh, Tony Howard from the English Department and Susan Brock from the Capital Centre. Um, I think probably it would be appropriate if I say a little bit about my impressions of the production and uh, then we can launch into some uh, uh, questions about it just to give people a sense of of what's going on. The first thing I would say is that uh, if you're interested in theatre or in literature or perhaps just in the lives of men and women on this planet, I would (laughs) advise you to make your way immediately to the Arts Centre box office and get a get a ticket for yourself and indeed it would be a signal act of friendship to tell your friends to uh, make sure they see this production too. It really is a a quite outstanding uh, production and a a fairly unique kind of theatrical experience I think. Um, I mean there's a lot involved in adapting a novel, there's a lot more involved in adapting um, a very long, very capacious, very complex novel um, and a novel which many people might well call a philosophical novel. Uh, how did we get all that on, uh, on stage? And uh, I think um, when you go to the theatre, you often have the experience of uh, seeing a bright idea of the director stuck on somewhere. And over the course of the next few hours, you see this slowly peel off because it's just a sort of add-on. Whereas um, you also have this other kind of experience where you see right at the beginning that uh, a really um, uh, a really intelligent iconic presentation of the heart of the uh, of the work has been found and then the production built around this and the thing that struck me about this production was the quality as it were of its framing uh, when we say that um, uh, Tolstoy has written a philosophical novel. The heart, of course, in many ways is likely to sink because one think of a lot of rather undramatic uh, discussion, <laughs> perhaps, or uh, authorializing or sort of puppet, puppet play with, uh, with uh, rather two-dimensional characters. That's not at all what makes Tolstoy, of course, a philosophical novel, novelist, although um, 
being Russians, perhaps, they're not embarrassed about having uh, very serious philosophical discussions along with making love, making war and making food and all the other things that uh, human <laughs> beings do. But at the heart of this novel is the question, really, of time. That is a philosophical problem, uh, that all experience comes to us in time. That's, that's the condition under which we have it. So there is this strange mystery, in a way, that we uh, all know as a perfectly obvious, simple fact that we live our lives in the present. And everyone who's lived on the planet before lived their lives in the present. <laughs> but we have no access to their present. It's mm. in the past for mm. us. And, of course, our present is constantly going to join that massive past. And we cannot understand the present of the past. And uh, this is strictly a philosophical problem. It puzzled Augustine. It puzzles anyone who thinks about it closely. And what this production has, I think, very, um, very wonderfully done is found a theatrical language for dealing with this mystery, which is not presented, as it were, as an analytic mystery, as something to be understood philosophically, um, it's understood as something that enacts itself uh, on, the, on the stage for us. So the, the first thing that the production does is to start with a framing device by setting itself in the modern uh, museum, I presume the Hermitage in, in Petersburg, and a Western tourist of Russian descent gets chatting with the... Uh, the, the attendant in the room and conversation then turns to the characters whose portraits are, are surrounding us. I don't know whether the people responsible for this production would have um, seen or had any connection with the film Russian Ark, but no. it uses exactly the same device very brilliantly mm. and uh, it, it sets itself off in the Hermitage Museum and then it goes back into the history of Russia, 18th, 19th century. The great um, strange achievement of that uh, film, technically, what it's known for, is that although it has an immensely complex set of scenes, lots of extras, actors, it's a two-hour film, it's an immensely complex uh, thing to do, it's all done in one single camera take. There isn't a single break. And you realise when you're in there, you are the camera... And in fact, it absolutely depends on this technique. It's not a bit of pyrotechnics. Now, this production also used this device of going back in time. Uh, but also, I would say, it is also, uh, uh, let's say, an unbroken take once it starts to move. Uh, the stage never leaves you empty. It always dissolves from one centre, one scene into another. There's a stage picture changing, it carries on. I would say that if you were sitting there for as many hours as you sit watching this, uh, uh, this production, if it wasn't unbroken, it, it would be, if you let the thread go at any moment, it would probably be a disaster. But actually it feeds and it keeps all the elements playing into each other, which is the whole point of these complex Victorian and, and sort of Russian 19th century novels. So it, it's, it's found a way of, of finding a sort of equivalent for that interaction um, of, the, uh, 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 of all the elements in the narrative. And, of course, the framing there mentions things that happen after Tolstoy's time, or well, not after Tolstoy's time, uh, after um, 
the time of Tolstoy's story, but then also, in fact, after Tolstoy's time. So that we get various levels of history afterwards. We get the mention of the Decembrist uh, uh, sort of putsch, uh, and uh, that is something that when we come to the very end of War and Peace, we see in the apparently peaceful endings as the two couples go to bed that we can feel this new history of, of, uh, of violence in, you know, in Russia is already lurking there. It's going, it, it's going to come in a few years' time. And we, of course, know all the later history of violence in, in Russia. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful way mm-hmm. of going back into time through a dissolve which um, uh, carries that massive sense of, 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 uh, of, of what's come afterwards and, as it were, produced us. And we, mm-hmm. we make that journey mm-hmm. back. To, to the time of Tolstoy's you know, Polionic um, uh, narrative. But then, I say framing, there's then uh, um, a very theatrical uh, device with the frame, which I think is quite um, wonderful in its simplicity and its, its profundity. Um, when you look at the stage, you find that it has a rather harsh, perhaps metallic set that recesses about three different layers as you go into the acting space. And in a harsh light, where you start, you see that as harsh metallic. Once you go back into the older world, it slightly changes and feels much more like marble. Um, So that goes with these rather elegant surroundings. But then if you've got battle scenes, there's also a kind of mirror effect. So you get ghostly mirroring effect which enlarges the the action uh, 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 around you. So you have that as the basic set which never changes but it has on it, you also notice bits not quite complete sometimes of um, gilt frames as for pictures, paintings uh, because that's the museum where you started and these are used actively and people look through them, they step through them And you realise, of course, when you think about a a painting, what we have in the frame is a fixed two-dimensional object to represent a life that isn't there. But when we think of when that frame was first set around it, it would have been at a time when the person would have been living in their present. That's where the reality would have been. And the side that we look at is the side that would have been the blank, the <laughs> empty. That is the future that those people didn't know. It's a wonderfully, wonderfully simple, profound way of getting at this strange mystery of historical existence mm. of people. Uh, and so they look through the frame as a picture into, the, into our world, as it were, uh, or they sit there almost as if in a small set of theatrical proscenium framings uh, or they step through them as doors so that you can go from, as it were, one world into another. So without overdoing it, this motif came back time and again and I thought, so there was the overall historical framing and then this literal artistic Mm. framing which I thought that was just uh, a wonderfully um, vivid, simple, profound 
device, mm. you know. So when I, mean, I chatted a bit there to try to give a sense yeah, of, yeah. of what is um, so good That's about this production. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm then interested to yeah. know how this grew up. I mean, we were talking a little a moment ago, and I, I was wondering particularly how that device of the framing mm. came in, at what point someone thought of this, because yes. it seems so structural, so essential yes. now. Yes, I mean, thinking yeah. back now and trying to, trying to remember... Mm. I mean, we do begin in the Hermitage Gallery, and of course mm. that building was once a palace, and many of the scenes in mm. the story take place yeah. in these you know, very grand mm. ballrooms and drawing rooms mm. of the Russian aristocracy of the time. So there's a kind of logic to the idea mm. that you're in this very kind of, you know, this, 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 this room, this splendour. Um, and the idea of frames, the, 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 they're in fact made of mirror the walls, mm. Mm. as they often are in those buildings. Mm. Um, but it's very foxed and mildewed, mm. so that it has an appearance, as mm. you say, sometimes mm. of being almost like marble, sometimes it almost looks like a vast sky. Mm. Um, uh, but but the, it came originally from the thought that that society, the kind of upper echelons of Russian society mm. at that time, I mean, Tolstoy really loathed, and it's one of the things you feel in the novel, he felt those people were, were superficial and self-obsessed mm. and um, mm. this notion that they would be surrounded by mirrors and that mm. they're constantly observing mm. themselves yeah. and yeah. that everything that they do really is, a, is, is about status and power and about, mm. about your reflection, if mm. you like. What, mm. Uh, mm. And I think, though at a deeper level, the, the, for me, one of the things that's so brilliant about Tolstoy, I mean, they say, don't they, that as human beings... We are the only creature that looks in the mirror mm. and realises that the, mm. the thing that they're looking at is themselves. Mm. You know, an, mm. an animal will start to attack the thing in the mirror and they will never understand mm. that that's them. Mm. And that, that there is something about that that is both a, you know, a blessing and a curse because it means that we're conscious that not only do we look out at the world, but the world mm. looks back at us. Mm. And I think that fundamentally changes us as animals, mm. doesn't it? Yes, yes. And and Tolstoy, I think perhaps you could say, as more than anybody, I think writes brilliantly mm. about the schism between what it is that we show other people, what we want other people mm. to see of who we mm. are, mm. and who the inner life. Uh, and very often these are... Um, completely at odds with one another mm. you know and, and this facility that we have as human beings to conceal and to uh, you know project something mm. whilst the internal experience can be really something mm. quite profoundly different mm. I think is really one of the things that's um, at, yes. at, the, at the center of his yes. writing so I think that idea of, of, of framing things mm. and of um, a self-consciousness if you like and Natasha, as a young teenager, looking at herself yes, in the mirror and that's talking right. to, to her, a, a, a discovering her, who she is, yes. you know, or, or not discovering who she is, as the case may be. Yes, yes. And also, um, there is a phrase passed there somewhere about the the supposed animal happiness of the peasants. Yes. And um, we just get enough suggestion of yes. that. That's very big in, in yes. the novel, if one might say. Well, we get we get that there, but also then it it made it very effective. You have the hunting scene, mm. where of course the dog is played by a, mm -hmm. a man, a young man, 
Uh, and of course, this is not just a kind of way of getting the narrative done. There's something about the relation of the human and the animal mm-hmm. is, as you say, a very big question yes. for Tolstoy. In, 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 um, I mean, a peasant, yeah. a peasant at that time mm. probably would never have seen themselves in a mirror. Yeah. They might not yeah. lot of them, yeah. you know, so they have yeah. an existence which in that yeah. sense is closer to an animal mm. existence. That yeah. They wouldn't have that. Mm. And, and, so, and Tolstoy, I think, is... is um, fascinated by that possibility mm. of living in a way that it, it, it is not about um, you know what we are projecting yes um, it's not reflective yeah, exactly yes, yes yeah. but what it might be to connect with yeah. something that's more profoundly mm. human and to be able to live in the present mm. um, which is something that as, as, as adults Mm. I think we find increasingly hard to achieve. And, and, and at mm. the end of the story, when he meets Karateyev, mm. the, the, the peasant in yep. the prison, after going through these, mm. these terrible, going through the war mm. and nearly being killed, and, and he has this, this kind of very profound experience of meeting this man who says that the only thing that matters is to live in the present mm. and to, to take pleasure in... The simplest and mm. most ordinary things, yes. <laughs> yes. and for yes. a short while, Pierre actually experiences that. Mm. Um, mm. And you know, I think it's it's interesting because it's the absolute antithesis, isn't it, of this mm. very self-conscious, mm. aristocratic mm. world mm. that we begin the story mm. in. Also, because when you mention Pierre, and you might link him with Napoleon, who is, is mm. in a sense his hero at the beginning is that between the the two of them we've not only got the the reflective side of human beings the the, the bit that makes them as it were inauthentic mm, very often mm. on the other hand it's also the bit that certainly makes them what they are yes. as you say but there's also then the whole um sense of uh 18th century enlightenment colliding with the old russian world that is a great theme of the great you know mm. Russian novelists mm. of the nineteenth century, including Tolstoy. And I thought that was that was very nicely brought out, the way the the figure of Napoleon is the figure in which um, the as it were the, the 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 gradual loss of that optimism about the Enlightenment is actually figured. And we see it over the course of the action of course as Pierre loses his his admiration for yeah, uh, yeah. Napoleon, but there's also the sense of the figure of Napoleon himself, who yes. is this monumental figure, you know, Dostoevsky and Raskolnikov and Julien Sorel, yeah. all these other sort of heroes of 19th century fiction. So we've got, we got Napoleon as this sort of mythic mm. figure, but he's a mm. mythic figure of the, ambiguity, the ambivalence of the Enlightenment itself. Well, I mean, I he- uh, Helen, was, Helen Edmondson, the adapter, and... Um, she talks about well, when you're tackling a novel, which is this this vast yeah. thing that yeah. takes hours and yeah. hours to read, and mm. you have to distill it mm. into something that you're going to watch in a few mm. hours. Um, that you have to know what it is that is at the centre yeah. of the story yeah. for you, mm. and that's something very personal that's to do with mm. your response to the novel. And yeah. um, for her, and certainly this is something that's absolutely at the centre of the novel, but she was fascinated by this, this theme of Tolstoy's, this question that he seems to be mm. asking about mm. how much control we have over our yes. own fate, over mm. our own destiny. Mm. And, and Napoleon, if you like, he exemplifies the 
the, the furthest degree of belief That's right. that you have absolute yeah. control over your own yeah. fate. Not only your own, but actually mm. the fate of mankind. millions of people, yes. of mankind. And mm. that it is legitimate and justifiable to mm. um, decide that you are going to change... Uh, you know, you're going to march across Europe and you're going to, you know, you're going to change the world mm. and that you make decisions that are going to affect millions mm. upon millions of people because mm. you know what is right. Mm. Mm. Uh, and then at the other end of the extreme, uh, you have Kutuzov, the Russian mm. general, who believes that nobody knows mm. how things are going to mm. transpire, that the mm. battle is this kind of chaos mm. and that really all one can do is wait and have mm. the patience to be able to mm. see which way the tide is flowing mm. um, so you have these two generals who are kind of the antithesis mm. of each mm. other in their thinking mm. and all the main characters in the story uh, relate to that theme yes. of will so for yes. example you have Natasha who certainly at the beginning of the story has this absolute belief in her own will and her own capacity mm. to achieve whatever it is she wants. And mm. um, Yes, and then in a way it's very appealing. It's very childlike, actually, mm. isn't it? Mm. An absolute belief in mm. our own will and refusal to believe that mm. anybody else has, uh, you know, should supersede that. And uh, then uh, on the other hand you have Maria, who's deeply mm. religious and thinks that you should uh, completely give up your own will mm. and that she's been put on earth in order mm. to serve God mm. and that actually her own desires are, are to be um, yes yeah, that, that her task is to live for mm. others and not mm. for herself mm. and of course that's a struggle for her but mm. I think her, so, so everybody in the story is relating to mm. that big theme so, so I think Napoleon is there, you know, it, it, returning to the, yeah. your question. That, that's really how mm. he functions in the piece. Mm. And one of the things that Helen's done that's so clever is at the beginning of the story, um, Pierre, who's one of our central characters, mm. who's probably the closest to Tolstoy, mm. who's somebody who has enormous kind of longing and, um, you know, at the beginning ha- has this, this, this uh, desire actually which never leaves him, which is to find meaning in life. Mm. And at the beginning of it, he admires Napoleon and Mm. um, um, he, in this version of the story, is present in Pierre's head. Mm. Napoleon is Mm. there. And so we see uh, Pierre relate to Napoleon Mm. and and Mm. early on he's he's trying to emulate him. Mm. And as time goes by, they start to argue. Mm. And even at times, Napoleon, it starts to beat Pierre up. And Mm. In a sense, he, he's the part of Pierre that longs to be able to be mm. decisive and longs to be able to be a leader mm. and mm. Um, to to be a man of kind of action rather mm. than this rather yeah. kind of paralysed, confused, mm. insecure yeah. Yeah. human being, much more like the rest of us. And and this relationship with Napoleon, I mean, I think it's, it's very clever what Helen's done because it, it allows us to dramatise mm. Pierre's inner struggle. Yes. Uh, by putting Napoleon on stage with him. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and I, and and because it, it uh, and I was going to say, bringing Napoleon on stage was again a solution to the problem of, as it were, the amount of space and meaning that Napoleon takes up in the narrative, mm, mm. Uh, for which there won't be a kind of vehicle except yes. on stage. So actually putting him there and then putting him right inside Pierre's head is, you know, it, that. 
was a wonderful stroke. Yeah. Highly, highly economical, but it focuses yes. all that meaning. And that's what I admire. There were so many different things being done by everything on stage all, all at once yes. somehow. And then as it goes on, as, as uh, Pierre is, as it were, moving away from Napoleon, because it's at the point where he's moving closer to him, because yes. he's actually there at the Battle of uh, Bodadino. Yes. So they sort of meet on stage yeah, as yeah. the real people, you know, which is a one, you know, wonderful way of sort of playing the, playing the variations uh, on, uh, on all that. Yes, yes. Um, yes, I, I, I wondered as well, I mean, so many things to uh, talk about, but the... I wondered about the adaptation, because I know you've done some adaptation, and one of the things that struck me about it was, of course, what one won't have is, you know, the great authorial reflections mm-hmm. that, that make up um, War and Peace, but what this production did was to find phrases which were left hanging in the air, so they were simple phrases, but then they sort of lingered as you were just seeing the stage dissolve into the next action. So things like um, it's Anatoly Kuragin is brought in to be a possible suitor for Maria, Masha, the sister of uh, Andrei, Andrei Bolkonsky. And she's a very, she's a very good, she's a very pious person you've just been talking about. She sees her life, you know, in, in terms of doing for others. He's the most unsuitable person, a, a clearly, <laughs> totally spoiled uh, 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 young man. And, um, of course, he, and he turns out afterwards to, you know, indeed to, you know, to, to behave very badly by, uh, by, by everyone. But at, at this point, when the father is in a sense trying to sell him as a suitor, and the old Count Bolkonsky asks him, you know, what he does, and asking about himself. And he's just been fixed up with a presumably quite sinecure post in the in the military, oh, yes. but he can't remember quite what it is. So he asks his father, "What am I attached to?" And the old Count says, "Ah, he doesn't know what he's attached to." This phrase, "What he's attached to," uh-huh. and you so. The immediate meaning, of course, is simply he doesn't know what posting he's been given, what job. But, of course, you realise it echoes with the thought, this is a young man who has no commitment. Yes, he doesn't know yes, what his values are. Yes. I mean, and so it just it, it lurks at the, end of the, mm-hmm. at the end of the scene and it's just mm-hmm. played with and goes on. Or the moment when, I forget, the, I guess, I don't know whether it's um, Mamselle talking to, um, to Masha, but... Uh, but uh, maybe the scene, but the, the scene ends roughly with, I will leave you in peace. Mm. Oh, well, mm. I'll leave you in peace then, mm. meaning, you know, I, yes. I won't bother she you. Says, peace. But actually, by this time, the word peace yeah. has become yeah, profoundly yeah. problematic. Because yeah, yeah. actually, all these characters, when they're not at war, are in peace. But by now, you've learnt this is a very mysterious kind of a binary. We only think we know what peace is because the war is going on. But actually, we realise, of course, Peace is something that is taking us well, to death, just as surely as war. Yes, yes. So leave you in peace really means leave you in this terrible condition. Yeah, you know, that yeah. you're thing. So it's full of those kind of um, that's the, that, phrases. Uh, that, that, that's what yeah. makes Helen's writing so fantastic. Mm. That you know, it has mm. this terrific sort of mm. economy, and yet mm. the simplest of phrases mm. can really yes. resonate yes. And, and has much more than the literal meaning of the moment. Mm. You know, and I, I mean, I think that's really the, mm. the sign of a great mm. writer, which yes. Helen is. Because they're totally ordinary phrases, mm. of course, and um, they're not sort of set up poetic. The other one that I I liked was uh, when Natasha falls for this. Um, uh, 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 this this other fellow uh, Anatoly for a while, 
but of course it's disastrous because it breaks up her engagement with uh, Andre, etc. But while she's under this infatuation, she says, oh, I've lost my heart. Mm. I've lost my heart. And again, it means, well, I've given my heart to this fellow. But actually, it, it means something much more profound, that this young girl whose feelings were so spontaneous, mm. she felt she knew who she was, mm. and everything. suddenly, actually, she has lost her heart. Her yes. heart can no longer tell her what to do. Yes. I mean, it's a, again, it's something that just echoes and, yes. and lingers yes. as the next scene yes. comes in. Um, these, these were these were these were wonderful effects. What about the music and the the dancing in this? Did you? How did that um, creep up? Was that just something that had to be there because of the? Well, we have a wonderful mm. composer, Peter Salem, mm. who's able mm. to. I mean, I think very brilliant at creating soundscapes that help to create atmosphere and to heighten the emotional. Mm energy of a scene but without mm. making it melodramatic mm. which is mm. a very difficult mm. and challenging mm. thing to do because we all know how, how, how we've yeah. all heard music that actually yeah. makes something start to become yeah. overstated and it's very easy to do that but he's, he's very clever at creating textures of sound um, or, and sounds that, that have a kind of energy to them mm. That just help to yes to, to heighten it because obviously we're we're using an expressionistic language here in mm. this piece. It's not a naturalistic language, and yeah. you know, a shared experience. One of the things we're really interested in doing in this possibility of going beyond naturalism and beyond the surface mm. of things and making visible mm. what's going on inside of us. So mm. you know, our emotional life, our memory, our fantasy. Um, you know, all the stuff that's going on inside us the whole mm. time that other people can't see but it is subjectively is yes. perhaps more real than the, mm. than the visible world mm. and so, so music is a wonderful and sound, I would say it, it's not always music, a lot of it is, 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 is wonderfully sort of textured sound that, that just allows us to feel as though we somehow connect right into the, into the inner experience <coughs> of the character yes Yes, good. I mean, actually, Natasha's sort of seduction stroke infatuation begins at the opera. Yeah. And you yes. have the characters <laughs> looking through frames from their, their boxes, and then she is taken over, and the characters all sing. So you're listening to the opera, but you're listening to them sing the opera that it's kind of, There's a very similar kind of thing in Anna Karenina or yeah. the opera. Part. So there is, that, as you say, it, far from being sentimental, it's actually taking the sentimentality, if it were, of the music and actually mm. sort of putting it into the action mm. as the. Uh, I mean, that's the an interesting mm. example, isn't it? Mm. Because this young girl is so overwhelmed mm. by her very first experience mm. of, of being completely sexually affected mm. by this man. Mm. And this is a young girl of 16 at mm. a time when, mm. you know, she would, would be very naive mm. in that sense. I think mm. she would have yes. no sexual experience. Yeah. And, mm. and so to use the opera to express mm. that, I mean, this is Helen's mm. idea, is very, very clever because the opera is mm. such a... Um, you know, heightened mm. form, and mm. the idea that it becomes as if she's in the opera. Yes. In fact, interestingly, mm. that scene is going to be reworked, and we're going to bring it to life around her to much greater degree. Oh, I'd love to see that because yes, I mean, the, I, it was wonderful as it is, but I can see it's got that it potentiality. Yes, yes, yes. And and what you said, yes, I, I like what you said about the the music being part of just lifting it off naturalism I thought that was very effective because very early on you had the scene where because again it's always very good when something which is a 
a kind of awkward dramatic necessity or theatrical necessity is actually turned to thematic yeah, advantage. Yeah. And I, so you do have the difficulty that the Rostov family start off with young children and yet Petya has to be old enough to get shot yes, in the army but, yes, you know, by the end yes. of the story. So Petya was actually played at that point by a, a very clearly an adult playing a child um, and overplaying the, the, the child. So as you say, he was uh, in, in the Brechtian mode. He was, as it were, not acting a child but demonstrating a child right. in, 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 in a certain <laughs> way. This is the way. This is the way Brecht thinks of it. So, I mean, it did have the effect of... And actually, of course, there's a slight awkwardness with Natasha, who clearly is older. You know, the actress is clearly older than Natasha is when she's 13 or so yeah, at yes, this thing. But actually, having the one, the younger brother so over the top as a sort of younger child sort of meant that you were not taking these too naturalistically. You were already taking them in this sort of way. And then, of course, as the, as the thing goes on, she lives into that part and sort of... I mean, I suppose I think it. there's something fascinating mm. about watching a child's behaviour mm. in an mm. adult's body. I mean, but mm. a bit like something like yes. New Remembered Hills, that it's yeah. almost like a magnifying glass mm. on the child's behaviour. Mm. And that in itself can be quite fascinating. Yes. And again, it is expressionistic because mm. it, 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 it does magnify it and makes mm. it... Uh, you know, we sort of see their child's behaviour through the adult mm. body. Mm. Um, and in one of the great joys of this piece as a director, and I think as an audience actually, is you get to see these people over, you know, sort yeah. of... 10 years mm. of their mm. life or mm. longer than mm. that actually mm. and that is a great privilege because we really we live through all these mm. momentous events and we see their lives completely change and these mm. um, and, and that I think is, is a rather remarkable thing because we've got six mm. hours of stage mm. time and not just um, a handful of characters but this great tapestry of lives mm. so it really has a kind of scale to it and a mm. sense of this kind of epic journey, mm. which I think is quite unusual, and and for the audience at the end of it, you know, to have, have, have spent these all this time with these people and watched Natasha grow yeah. from this twelve-year-old girl into a woman yeah. with several children, and a, mm. you know, it, 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 that's a sort of there's something a bit magical about that, I think. Absolutely, and and I think it's that sense of, um, I mean, with, with Tolstoy, you you've got quite consciously the sense of trying to recreate an epic feel yes. and, 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 and scope. And that, that's immensely difficult to yes. you know, do on the circumstances of a stage. And you're right. I mean, I was going to ask about... Because um, I hadn't seen the, the earlier, shorter version. And I wonder how much difference it did make mm. to that effect. Because mm. I, I, you're right. It's very, it's very striking that you do get gradually that sense of a recession in time, you not only go back into the past, mm. but then the very thing that you've gone back to is itself receding yes. into the past. And the effect of having, you don't just have war and peace, you have peace, war, peace, war. You, you've got enough to get the sense of the wave-like action of this, and you're left yes. with the couples at the end already yes. having the discussion that you can see is pointing yes. towards the violence On in the, the future. Of, yes, yeah. So there is this sort of sense of, you know, that you're caught in a process yes. that's, that's, that, that's going back. And I wondered... What did because I think the I think Helen Edmondson did say something about um, doing it the second time round yes. allowed other things to yes. come out. Be interesting. Well, to it's know. actually about an hour longer. Mm. I mean, the, the the first version of it was one evening, one long mm. evening, and it is it, it's now you either watch it over an afternoon and an evening or or over two separate evenings, and and it's given her I think at least an hour's extra stage time, possibly mm. a little bit more. 
And what it's allowed her to do, I think, is is give us more detail in terms mm. of the particularly the the, the, the key characters, right. um, which I think pays absolute dividends later in mm. the story. So, for example, with Natasha and Pierre, who um, I don't know whether I'm giving away the story mm. here, but they, they at the end of it mm. they marry mm. and we see them living, you know, with mm. the, the, their children and. It's planted now, right from the very beginning, mm. that mm. there is a connection between these two people, and mm. it takes the whole of the evening for mm. them to finally mm. get together. Yeah. But and I think in the earlier version, it, it really it was just too distilled. I think it was, mm. you know, it, it, trying to cram it into four hours was really just pre- pushing it into mm. too smaller space. Mm. And and so there, it's, for us, I think it's been really gratifying actually. Mm. To mm. see the payoff of being able to to, to 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 get to know these characters better earlier earlier on. Mm. I mean, there are other characters well, like Andre. I think we just have more time with him mm. and more of an opportunity to really understand who he is and where he's coming from. Mm. Yes, I mean, no, it, it does work beautifully, and it does. Um, it's what Dickens didn't manage to do with Esther Summerson in Bleak House when she married John Jarndyce, the father figure at the end who is cared for there's something a little bit you know makes everyone feel a bit queasy about the way he suddenly you know or she, he, she doesn't marry him but this is what is you know what is sort of lined, lined up in the book that whole relationship whereas with Pierre uh, the sense of his sort of caring for her yes, and it's well, gradually changing and in its nature there's that wonderful moment yeah. isn't there where he mm. suddenly says in fact when his friend mm. tells him that he's in love with her and he's going to yes. propose to her which yeah. he does and she marries and she, yeah. she nearly marries yeah. her um, that he, he suddenly realises mm. he suddenly has this revelation I love her he says and yes. no, no one will ever know and yes. it's and, he, yes. and it's been that fascinating thing of how something can be happening in your unconscious mm. and then and mm. then suddenly you become aware of it yes um, that's the um, that is the big Theme that's right of the but going back to the as it were the loss of enlightenment reason and the sense that no there's some that there is something else in the in 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 the psyche there's much more than yes. reason reason is belittled by yeah, you know yes. the rest of what's going on and, and getting that sense of the characters yes. learning this being surprised by this is very you know, yeah that, that does I think that does come over one of my favourite moments in the evening actually mm. after Pierre's been released um, after. Mm being taken prisoner by the French mm. and he, he goes mm. through all sorts of terrible things and he, he in fact is, is, is being taken back to Paris um, mm. and uh, they all get, the, you know, I, I believe it was only one in ten of the yeah. French army that oh, actually yeah. got yeah, back yeah. to Paris. Yeah. So yeah. along the way they get mm. picked off and, and, and Pierre is released from the march back um, mm. as a prisoner of war. And I talked before about this kind of, revelation that he's had that that suddenly when everything is stripped away mm. from him and he has absolutely mm. nothing and this is a man who's mm. been very wealthy and that 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 he realizes that the secret of happiness mm. is to be able to exist in the present and mm-hmm. to uh, uh, appreciate that the, the tiniest mm. things in life mm. Mm. and when he sees Natasha again, which is this sort of extraordinary mm. meeting, he doesn't even recognise her. They both been mm. through so much, mm. and he tells her about meeting Karateev and how it's mm. transformed his life. And there's a wonderful moment when he leaves her and he realises that he's completely taken over again mm. by his 
feelings for her. Mm. And he mm. says, I, I almost wish I hadn't seen her because mm. he's becoming reattached, if you like. Mm. He's yes. starting to want things and he's mm. starting, you know. And that, that notion of that sort of endless dilemma of, of how we, you know, the, the idea that mm. he's almost in a Buddhist place of complete non-attachment. Mm. And in that state, there is a kind of peace Mm. That is, there is mm. a, a real peace, yes. and that as soon as he starts to fall in love and starts to want something, mm. it, it, he becomes he's drawn mm. back into all yes. that turmoil, and you know it's, yeah. it's it's absolutely the thing that is, um, you know, one of life's big dilemmas, mm. isn't it? How well, yes, absolutely, because it's interesting you use the word attached, mm. which is the thing about Anatoly Karadzic, who did have no attachments, yes. and because you could live in that kind of Buddhist. That would be the ultimate form of peace, but in a sense, it's off one end of the radar, yes. same as pe- yes. war is off the other end, Absolutely. and life is in this place in the middle. And which I think is between... what's really interesting at the end of the piece is Helen leaves us mm. with Pierre having gone to mm. Moscow and being part mm. of this group mm. who are preparing now mm. to challenge the yeah. government. And he's yeah. one of the last things he says in the yeah. piece is that if necessary, they will. Yes use violence mm. and the, the word revolution is mm. used mm. which of course has huge yep. significance right. for us now yeah. and I think that idea that although Pierre he does learn that lesson and for mm. a while he exists in a kind of state mm. of grace mm. where he is is, is very detached he is detached mm. if you yes. like and um, that we it's it, is it even desirable or possible to remain mm. in That's that right. place it, you know yeah. and at the end of it, he is, you know, he, 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 he's back being drawn into right. uh, this, you know, and feeling the necessity yes. of becoming part of this mm. um, movement that's going to challenge mm. the government that's doing all sorts mm. of appalling things. And, you know, this question, do we, do we just live our domestic lives mm. and take mm. pleasure in what we can? And, or do mm. we have, have to get mm. involved in... Mm. Um, you know, yes, in the bigger picture, and I, I'm, I'm sure that's right. That um, that Plato, the one who accepts what yes. God gives, yeah, is not is not ultimately the you know where, where the world can't be conducted on this yeah, on this yes. principle. And I think this is this is this is absolutely right. And of course, it it, it also um, goes back to when we were talking about Napoleon earlier. I suppose picking up what you were saying then is Napoleon was perhaps the first great example of terrible, terrible disasters being brought about by people who were actually trying to do good. I mean, up to then, it was usually, frankly, empire and territory and the interests of the great powers. But then we begin to move into modern history when much more disastrous things are done to massive populations by some kind of motive of wanting to reorder the world, reform it, etc. And and that's that's the big model of what, Nonetheless, we recognise we can't get out of this bind. We yeah. can't not reform the world. Yeah. And yet every example of, of history all down, you know, that ever since the Enlightenment has yeah. been the, of these, you know, these terrible disasters yes. brought about by yes. the attempt to do so. Yes. There, isn't, there isn't going to be a way out. Yes. That, that's, that's and Pierre and Andre have that yeah. debate, don't yes. they? Yes, yes, And, and, and Andre mm. actually questions the idea that you can really do mm. anything to help mm other people you yes. know that, that, that surely yeah. that's when we get into trouble yeah. as soon as we start thinking yes. we know what's best for somebody else yeah which is yeah. really interesting yes yes or even date. if we imagine we know for ourselves yeah. than anyone else yes linking that back actually to the the theme of 
time and history and 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 um the fact that we don't live in the present ourselves mm. most of the time mm. we live emotionally in the past or the future and then that we of course we can't understand the presentness of the lives of people in the past out of all these gaps you produce this sphere of illusions and delusions of various kinds one of which goes under the name of history mm. Mm. and um uh, napoleon is wanting to create history in mm. some way he's mm. the one who everyone will yes. um uh remember and all these other young men want to go on for glory and, and destiny etc and the, this difficult lesson is learning actually as you said to live you know to live um in the present and i think absolutely yeah. i mean one of tolstoy's mm. big arguments is that mm. really history Afterwards, the history books mm. get written and, and, mm. and people shape it and, mm. and claim there was a sort of narrative mm. there. And that, mm. uh, but in reality, in the, it, as it's being lived, he talks about the swarm life of mm. mankind, doesn't mm. he? Yes. You know, really, uh, he sees everything as being, you know, that there's a sort of chaotic um, mm. and, um, what's the word, intractable nature mm. to you mm. know that it, it's, it's beyond anybody any mm. kind of narrative mm. and, and that that we later impose a narrative upon mm. it and make all sorts of claims as to what mm. our intentions were and mm. we shape it in the history mm. books but but as it's actually being lived that 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 really it's mm. there's something very very kind of random about it i mean that's i think that's really tolstoy's thesis yes yes and it, and it is in fact um it can be a mere giving up, or it can be the highest kind of philosophical, spiritual yes, achievement yes. to accept this. Yes. That's the, the ambiguity yes, absolutely. too. And we have in Pierre, yeah. don't we, because we see mm. him become very depressed, be completely mm. unable to take any mm. kind of action, feeling mm. completely unmotivated and miserable. Mm. And and that's a kind of state of, of, of yes kind of giving up of all mm. will and yet you also see it as the opposite don't you in yes. his experience of with Karataya mm. as, as a kind of ultimate freedom yes. and, um, well it's like I mean at the end of the century the other great man of the 19th century perhaps was Goethe mm. a different kind of figure mm. from uh, um, Napoleon Nietzsche looked back on him as Perhaps he was about the one example you could think of of the the real Umech, you know, uh, 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 idea. But he he describes him as someone with amor fati, as it were, love of fate, uh-huh. or if you like, his fate. In other words, who accepted um, life as it as it comes, yes. you know, as it is. Uh, and that is the most difficult thing to do. That's what Nietzsche was holding up as, right. a, a, as a kind of model. But instead of doing it in a religiose spirit, having to keep God in the equation as yeah. a kind of alibi for this, Nietzsche was doing this in an entirely... Um, yes. With a, with, he was staring directly at modern nihilism yes, as, he, yes, as he said this. Yes, yes. Uh, and so this is something that... Um, you know what Tolstoy is onto there is yeah. something that's echoing through the well, great I mean, it does feel period. as though he is yeah. very much ahead of his time in that yeah. way, Tolstoy. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. is a, a nihilism there, yeah. and um, it can feel extraordinarily contemporary. Yes, yes. And the other thing about the um, because the, the War and Peace and the epic, and I, I, I've read War and Peace when I was about nineteen, I was a second year university one. Summer. In fact, I'm still wondering where could that little world classics have disappeared? Like, <laughs> like, like that anything the else, it's gone into the past, you know. Well, but it isn't even. But the 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 what the, the 
I remember one overwhelming impression that came away was this sense of this sense of proportionality that you had the Battle of Austerlitz, you had the Battle of Bodadino, and you had Natasha going to her first ball, and these were entirely on a par, as it were, as yes. as, as, as human yes. events. And I yes. think there, that, that is one of the things that is so wonderful, and that is the epic, uh, the epic quality that's uh, that somehow you know coming coming down through through uh, you know, most ancient European narratives yeah. and, and, and Tolstoy is still um, doing this. And I, I thought moments like that were wonderfully um, caught in, in both directions in the sense, the, the sense of certain moments being there and being appreciated. I think there's one moment where Countess Rostova says of Natasha when she's very young, I will always have you. Yes. And there's, a, 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 afterwards, she also says how foolish Natasha is to say, she said, Natasha, no, you can't go on being, Natasha wants everything to go on being the same. <laughs> no, Natasha, you can't go on being the same. And yet these two are not quite a contradiction. When she says, I will always have you, yeah. she knows it's in the context of things can't go on being the same. Yeah, she's yeah. treasuring that moment. So there is that sense of, um, people knowing this, there's also the sense of people um, not knowing it. In yes. other words, they're um, they're they're missing uh, uh, their moment or not knowing and how to look for it. And I thought the um, the moment when Pierre's father dies was again just quite wonderfully simply done. Uh, he has gone to his father, who presumably mm. doesn't see that often. The father's on the deathbed. And the father's trying to say something, and, and Pierre is trying, well, are you trying, and, and he's thinking of all the important things that the man would say on his, on his deathbed, and he can't get out. And then the, the, the servant who's standing there says, he wants you to turn him over. Um, and there it is, this, this sheer bodily necessity of his discomfort yes. wants to be turned over. So there was this constant sense of looking for the big, the big yeah. things, and, and the, the thing that's right in front of your nose you don't yes. actually see. And of course, yeah. actually if you could actually look after the old man's physical needs at the last minute, yes. that would actually probably be the, the real act of love. That yeah. would be, but you're always, looking, you're always looking somewhere else. So I think that, you know, that was, there were lots of moments in the production that yes. caught something that you might have thought could only really be done on that epic scale of the ah, Tolstoyan narrative. Ah. But I think you were finding you know, constant little moments in, in, on stage yes. where that, those, those effects were brought yeah. home. Well, I think one of the great achievements of Helen's mm. adaptation um, is that it, 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 it both gives us the big sweep of the story and yeah. it has extraordinary intimacy, actually. Mm. And um, you know, certainly for Nancy Metler and myself, the two directors of the piece, I think that's one of the joys of it, you mm. know, that, that, that it, actually you do get these as you say, mm. these moments between people that are incredibly sort of subtle mm. and particular mm. as well mm. as this, this mm. big story. Mm. Yeah. Well, it was one... Well, I, I, I guess if you enjoyed doing it, that did... There are certain things in life which take a lift if you enjoy doing them. Think, <laughs> and that, that must have come over in the, in the production. Yes. So, well, maybe that might be the note on which to end. <laughs> yeah.